Good morning, Mercy. I love being together with you again. I love you guys so much. We are just past the halfway mark in our sermon series with James. We've already seen him talk about issues of doubt, issues of anger, discrimination, superficial faith, foul language, false wisdom even, but today it gets worse, (laughs) much worse. I'm talking about the very breakdown of our closest relationships, brother at war with brother, parents at war with children, husbands at war with wives, and God, yes, even God at war with us. I think many of us here today know the pain of broken relationships. And if you're here today and you're, maybe you're watching online and you're pretty sure that James, what he's got to say will be really great for that other person in the relationship, I can assure you, you've come to the right place. So let's take a look at James chapter 4 together, starting in verse 1, which says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Would you pray with me? God, our Father, who are we to judge? Lord, you are the righteous judge, and we are not. God, help us to learn today that fact. Help us to heal relationships. Help us to dive deep into this word, Lord, with the short time that we have. We pray that your spirit would be moving powerfully over us. And now, my God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. You know, 
It probably drives my wife crazy, but I absolutely love documentaries. I do. There was one a few weeks ago that really had me riled up. She'd tell you, I was like pacing around the room. It was about an upstart organization that had a big vision. I mean, like a huge dream. And they successfully tapped into the American marketing machine and just exploded. They became like the brand of brands, really the brand to follow. It was amazing. They expanded like crazy, even set up schools and started conferences, had speaking engagements, interviews, and even a record label. I mean, on the surface, it seemed like by every measure, they were hitting success big time. But as the story would go, of course, under the surface, there was something a little more despicable going on. I mean, this organization was making tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars, and yet they were exploiting the poor, having people within the organization volunteer and sacrifice time and money. All the while, the leadership was benefiting on that, that they were reaping the benefits of that sacrifice. They were, unfortunately, doing despicable things like bribery, lying, falsification of records. They were playing favorites with the rich and powerful and famous in society, even centering their whole identity on stuff like that. There was sexual sin. Sexual immorality, the likes of which I won't even get into up here. But with the sexual abuse and the adultery, when all of these things started to permeate outside the surface into the public, well, pretty quickly, things didn't go from defense. They turned to self-destruction. And that organization turned on itself, devoured itself, and began fighting, purging. There were legal battles, fights, and there's still a dark cloud over that organization to this day. I wish I could tell you that I was talking about some retail corporation or some big Hollywood firm. No, guys, I'm talking about a church. I'm talking about Hillsong. What happened? What happened with Hillsong? Why didn't they see? Why didn't we see what would happen with Hillsong? I think we can. I think we can see when so-called pastors have laser light shows and designer brands and wear $2,000 sneakers and get whisked away in helicopters to clubs and frat-style parties, that those are hearts set on carnality and not hearts set on Christ. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. But when you examine churches like Hillsong, I'm not sure our king would be convinced. I'm not sure the world would be convinced. The lesson I took away from that documentary was this. Nothing destroys the church more effectively in this world than the world. I mean, we can, we can take the believer out of the world, but why, oh, why is it so hard to take the world out of the believer? When we 
don't succeed at doing that, when the church stops being a beacon to this world and starts being a beacon of this world, well, that's going to lead to destroyed character, destroyed relationships, destroyed testimony for Christ. Mercy, if we don't become, if we do become just another flavor of the month to this world, if the best we can offer them is the world, well, they already have that. And far worse, if we make the mistake of setting our sights on the world and not setting our sights on our Savior, we no longer have anything of internal value, anything real, and they'll know it. There's no alternative to sin, no real salvation from sin, no real hope. Remember, James isn't writing this to the outside world. He's writing it to the church. He isn't warning us about the mess out there. He's warning us about the mess in here, which has its roots in here. He's going to show us that we don't keep watch on the world and its pleasures and its dangers from well-guarded towers like we should. No, we invite them right in right in the front gate, right through the front door, right past the kitchen and the living room, right into the bedroom of our hearts. Our relationship with worldly things, worldly ways, like Hillsong, are a tale of misplaced passions. Passion for worldly pleasures that we've welcomed into the bedroom of our hearts. Pleasures that need to be replaced with a passion for the one who actually belongs there. How do we get back on track with each other and with God when the pleasures of this world are forever calling us away into sin? Hillsong warns us what it's going to look like if we don't. James is going to warn us what it's going to look like if we don't. But James is also going to give us hope of what it can be like if we do. That repenting of our worldly ways can mean real hope. Hope that means real change for the better in our relationships. But he begins with a warning. The first warning is that worldly hearts are going to make us enemies with each other. In a practical sense, of course that happens. When the church takes on worldly living, then what comes with that is worldly concerns. And that will be expressed in worldly conflict. But in a spiritual sense, our broken relationships, they're an outward display of an inward reality. We had baptism last week. It was glorious. We said over and over that baptism depicts something. It depicts the gospel itself. It's an outward display of an inward reality. Wouldn't you know that sin has that too? Yes, sin has its own proclamation of ownership. The enemy enjoys a similar baptism, and the waters of his baptism are the world. When we plunge into worldliness, worldly desires, what we come back out with is conflict. Fighting, war, hatred, envy, discord. Those visible conflicts outside of me are in fact physical expression of an invisible conflict inside of me. 
Look what James says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. See, the world and my sinful flesh, it pushes hard to convince me that this world becomes better as I become greater. Is that what James says is going to happen here? No, he says that kind of thinking. That situation doesn't get better, it gets worse. As I try to gain more of the world and the world gains more of me, yeah, me and the world both end up worse. Christianity knows and teaches the exact opposite of worldly wisdom. He must increase. I must decrease. Remember? This world, the only true hope for a better world is when my name decreases and his name increases. That's because the more you gain that's of value to this world, the more pride you also gain because of it. And watch out because pride will make a real mess of your heart and your choices. Let's examine the heart here with James. He says that your passions are at war within you. That word passions, I I wish it was the word pleasure. Some translations say pleasures, but they are the worldly things. That Greek word is edone. It's where we get the English word hedonism, hedonist. A hedonist is someone that lives exclusively for earthly pleasures. And he says, they're at war within you. They're actually tearing you apart inside, tearing us apart outside. The world's doing that. But the next part in in verse two, this is the real pivotal element. He says, you desire and do not have. And that word desire is the word I kind of wish would be passions. And it's a noun, it's translated as passions in, in scripture, but it's a verb here. It's the word epithumeo, and it's a passionate craving, a passionate longing, a passionate desire for something. And it's, it's neither good nor bad, it's neutral. But the direction that we take that desire will determine a good and bad outcome. I'll give you an example. If I have an epithumeo, a real passion for my wife. That's a good thing. That's by design. It's supposed to be that way. But what happens if I take epithumeo, that same passion, for someone else's wife? That's always going to be a bad thing. If I have epithumeo, a a passion, a craving for my God, well, that's good. He designed me to be that way. But if I take that same passion and I give it to another God, to an idol, to a shiny thing on the shelf that I want so bad it could take his place in my heart, that is never going to end well. It's something that biblical counseling has known for a long time, something I hope we always remember, that we do what we do because we want what we want. It's really that simple. We do what we do because we want what we want. If I see sinful behavior, if I see sinful behavior in myself, I can always know that at the root of that behavior is actually a desire. Isn't that interesting? James says, you desire, there's a want, and do not have. 
So you murder. There's a sinful action. I do what I do because I want what I want. He says, you covet. There's a want and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. There's a sinful action. I do what I do because I want what I want. Guys, we are sinning because we are craving something worldly. We have a passion to have something we shouldn't and we'll fight and we'll kill and we'll steal to get it. But then he shifts things to prayer. This is interesting, isn't it? He says in verse 2 and 3, you do not have because you do not ask. And verse 3 says, you ask, but you do not receive. Well, those are really two sides to the same coin, aren't they? You don't ask God because you know what you want is not something you should want. You realize that? Or you do ask God and you're turned down because you don't know that what you want is not something you should want. So whether we're asking or not asking, the question remains, should I want this? Are we examining that question before we go to God in prayer, guys? Are we examining that question when it dawns on us that it's been a while since we've gone to God in prayer? Brother, sister, if you realize that you haven't been praying Consider very deeply what you're wanting. Is it him? Could it be that you already know that something's driven you in the direction of the world? If the things that you want most aren't his things, if the people you admire most aren't his people, well, maybe it's your kingdom you're after and not his. And deep down, you know it. Let's consider someone who really was given a kingdom. Solomon, excuse me, and I'm not going to put this on, on the screen. It's a long, long passage. It's in 1 Kings 3, if you want to go there in your Bible for reference. But Solomon is given the kingdom after his father David dies. And he goes to God and asks God not for worldly pleasures and not in a worldly way. He says, I'm, I'm but a little child. I don't even know my going out or coming in. It's extreme humility. And he says to God, would you give me a discerning mind to discern the right from wrong so that I can govern your people well? Oh, it's amazing. And, and the text says that it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. That's right where you want to be. That's where you want your prayer to be. And God said to Solomon, behold, now I do according to your word. Whoa. That's the creator of the universe speaking to little old Solomon saying, I will do according to your word. That's huge, guys. And Solomon really knocked it out of the park with that prayer because he didn't do it in worldly pride and he didn't do it for worldly things. Sometimes we don't, we don't do it that way, do we? we? Sometimes we're told no because of it. And a lot of us don't like hearing no. A lot of us don't like to 
accept no as an answer. That's, that's just pride. We, we are that way sometimes. Do we, do we actually learn from our Heavenly Father telling us no? That's really the question. Do we not realize that His no is for our good? I mean, there's an entire theological system, a false one, I'll say, by the way, that would have you think that God will give you just about anything if you pray with enough faith. That is a lie. No matter how much faith you have, God will never be your accomplice to sin. And he will not help you secure sinful pleasures or the wrong desires. Your loving father will tell you no. Thank him for it. When the text says, you ask and do not receive, it also tells us why, doesn't it? It says, because you ask wrongly to spend or squander it on your passions. There's the hedone, there's our worldly pleasures. When it says wrongly, that word in Greek, kekos, it means diseased. It means ill. As in, you are in a sickened state. And what you're asking for is going to make you sicker. You've totally poisoned yourself. And yet you're lying there, you're gasping for breath. With the little breath that you can muster, you're pleading with God to give you more poison. Friends, don't pray for the enslavements of this world. Don't pray for the poison. Pray for the antidote. In Luke 11, Jesus tells his disciples that everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks, the door will be open to them. Word of faith, people love this passage. It's like, there you go. I just need to ask with enough faith. I'll get it. But they don't keep reading. Jesus says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Holy Spirit, wait a minute. What about cars and promotions and breakthroughs and bank accounts? Oh, guys, that's the poison of this world. Don't pray for the poison. Thank God that he gives us the antidote for the poison we consume in this world. Thank God for giving us the spirit of Christ that saves our souls. And all we have to do for that glorious gift is ask. Are you kidding me? Rejoice in the gospel of a father who loves you, friends. It's yours. If you ask him, everyone's testimony is so special. And my wife's is no different. She has a wonderful testimony. I won't give it up here. You can ask her about it. I hope you do. But one of the crucial pieces of her testimony was a prayer that she made in the darkest of her days, in the midst of horrible turmoil that she was going through. She prayed for something very specifically. She asked God, God, I know you here. I've always known that you're good, that your ways are right here. I need that here. Give me passion for you. 
Would you give me a passion for your word? Would you give me you and a passion for the things that you're passionate for? That prayer brought her to her God. That prayer brought me to my wife. That prayer brought us to a small group of people that were meeting in homes, worshiping the Lord in the midst of COVID that thought maybe it'd be a good idea to start a church in Kent, Washington. That prayer has been seeing people saved and saved people grow in the unified bond of family. And that prayer brought me up on stage today to testify to you and to the whole world that God loves to answer that prayer. He gave, he gives, and he keeps on giving. We're straight up spoiled in the Father's generosity. And notice James warns us that passion for worldly things, it brings conflict. But a prayer for his Holy Spirit and a passion for God, it did the exact opposite. Undeniably, it brought together, brought together, brought together. A prayer for passion where our passion belongs. That's what your heavenly father loves to give you, delights to give you, friends. Pray for more of him and less of you. Pray for more of his pleasures and less of yours. I hope you'll join in the the prayer group that Rebecca was talking about Tuesday, Thursday morning. What a great opportunity to pray and pray together. Don't pray that your will be done. Pray that his will be done, that you can see his will be done, that you can take part in his will being done. That kind of prayer will upend your life and make his church shine for his glory. Count on it. We got quarrels, fighting among our brothers and sisters. That'd be bad enough. But James warns us that The love of this world, it also makes us enemies with our maker. Oh no, enemies with God. Nobody wants to be there. How'd we end up here? It shouldn't surprise us that becoming friends with the world is going to make us enemies with God. The world's already shown that it hates God. And if we're his, by association, we'll be hated too. He says to his disciples in the upper room, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Guys, remember that it was the world that declared war on God, not the other way around. Remember, the world is held captive to a different master with an agenda that opposes God's agenda. That's the problem. As Christians, we even know which agenda ultimately wins in the end, and yet we dare to dabble in the losing side. Are you kidding me? Why? Why? So that we can have our worldly passions gratified when and how we want them? That's dangerous. Don't get sucked into that. James says, you adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, what we're seeing here is a shift of allegiances from one master to another. I've shifted my direction and my loyalty from one side to another. 
He says that friendship with the world will put you in enmity with God. That word friendship, phileo in Greek, it means the bond of affection in a relationship. Beloved, if we seek the things of this world, that is a bond and that is an affection that is given to the wrong party. Notice it says in verse 4, whoever wishes, that's a desire, that's a choice, to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy. This is, this is a declaration that you make. God doesn't make you an enemy. He doesn't want that. You make you an enemy. He says, you adulterous people, in verse 4, adultery, where'd that come from? That's out of left field. James, what are you talking about? No, literally, the word is adulteresses. It's feminine, which makes sense, right? We are his bride. Now you start to see what he's talking about. You see, this bond of affection that I've now given the world means I haven't merely traded one master for another. Now, it's way worse. I've traded one lover for another. It's idolatry. In the Bible, idolatry and adultery are hand in hand. They are pictures of the same thing. It's allowing our heart to chase after the pleasures of this world instead of our creator. And that's no different from allowing our hearts to chase after the people of this world rather than our spouse. It's spiritual adultery. That's how serious this is. And God is a jealous husband. You see that in verse 5. He yearns jealously. I love that language, guys. It's so personal. It's so intimate. It's so beautiful to have a husband that yearns jealously over what's his. You adulterous people, he says. I mean, would you make yourself friends with the world? Would you unite yourself to another and expect your true husband won't notice? Of course he will. Of course it puts you at odds with him. Of course he'll take action. Were the pleasures of the world really worth all of that? Husbands, if you were to notice your wife texting other guys, trying to spend time with other guys, seeking affection and attention from other guys, is that going to draw you closer to her or put you at enmity with her? Wives, if you were to find your husbands in the wrong places online, in the wrong places after work, giving attraction and attention in all the wrong places, is that going to draw you closer to him or put you at enmity with him? Friends, we already have a lover. We already have a husband. The pleasures of this world, that idol that you've invited right into the bedroom of your heart right now is the other lover. Don't entertain it. Don't put up with it. Flee from it. Hear me say it. True and faithful relationship with our true and faithful lover depends on it. When it comes to the world, and when it comes to our God, somehow, we believe that we can have both. We really do. We think we can uh, negotiate with God, and with our own conscience, perhaps, uh, to somehow make it right, don't we? 
Oh, I don't know. Do you really think that you're negotiating with God for sinful desires, for worldly things? Do you really think you're able to have him and the world both at the same time? Just who do you suppose you're negotiating with? You know, there's an old Slavic parable that was about a man who saw the winter coming, so he went out hunting. He needed a fur coat. And right before he was set to shoot a bear, the bear whispered to him, whoa, whoa, can't we resolve whatever difference we have here without bullets? Maybe we could talk about it. So they sit down to talk. And the bear says to the man, now, what is it that you want? And the man says, well, you know, the winter's coming, so I just want a fur coat. Well, what do you want, Mr. Bear? And the bear says, well, yeah, the winter's coming. I'm going to go into hibernation, so I just want a full stomach. You know, I really think we're getting somewhere. And minutes later, delighted over the solution that they had found, the bear walked away alone. He had his full stomach, and the man had his fur coat, or so you could say. Brother, sister, let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that we can negotiate with God. God does not negotiate with sin, ever. We aren't negotiating with God for our worldly desires. We're actually negotiating with the devil and the devil delights to consume you if you'd only give him the opportunity. Dear family, let's end the negotiating. You can't have both God and the world. You won't have both God and the world. No man can serve two masters. He himself told us that. In Joshua chapter 7, the Israelites have just defeated the great city of Jericho. And God told them, don't you dare go in there and take any of their devoted things. Destroy it all. But there was a guy named Achan who apparently thought that the rules didn't apply to him. Maybe he thought he could negotiate with God, have both God and the money. So he went and took those devoted things and hid them in his tent. Now, did he negotiate with God? No, God was furious over it, so much so that the Israelites lost their battle. And when Joshua was perplexed over what had happened, the Lord let him know about it, and Joshua figured out that it was Achan, confronted Achan, and this is what Achan said. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver... And a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Sounds like worldly pleasures? Yeah, those are hedonay, big time, right? Then I, what? I coveted. I do what I do because I, what? I want what I want. And took them. Do what I do, what I want, okay? What happened to Achan? Did he end up with both God and money? No, Achan was stoned to death. And all his worldly pleasures were burned on top of him. Don't let it happen to you. My brothers, my sisters, don't make yourself an enemy of God. And if you have, and if you're willing to leave your prideful heart behind, James says, there's hope. Because humble hearts heal that relationship. 
good brother of mine in my Saturday morning men's group, Michael, said something so profound last Saturday. He said, we are born with pride. We have to learn humility. That's so good, guys. Putting worldly pride to death and reconciling with our God is not a painless process. And it might be a painful one for us. It certainly was a painful one for his son. That said, there's hope if we're ready to learn humility. James says, but he, remember the two most hopeful words in the whole Bible? But God, but he gives more grace. That's over and above his jealousy, above his anger over your sin. He gives grace. That's amazing, guys. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And that therefore right there, it means in order to have that grace, in order to have that humble heart, here's what you're going to need. He gives us a list of five things. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Right? Those are the five that he gives us. I wish I could get into more of it than we can. We just don't have time. But that is a beautiful picture of the priesthood, actually. This is an image of the tabernacle. Remember that James is writing to Jewish believers. They would have picked up on this right away. It's all priesthood language. Let me give you basically three-point synopsis of it, fast as I can. First, we have a change in my position. I stop opposing God, and I start opposing the devil. I submit to God, resist the devil, right? Second, I have a change in my passion. I draw my heart near to God. That's priesthood language, draw near to God. I focus my affections on my maker, which in turn draws my heart and my affections away from the pleasures of the world. And third, I change my purity. I cleanse my hands. That's what the priest would do at the labor before going into the tent, which signifies my sinful actions. And purify my heart, which is my sinful desires. That's the burnt offering, actually, at the tabernacle. It's the removal of the worldly, ple worldly pleasures in place of a godly and holy one. See, what, what I'm doing is I, I don't keep take, taking on the filth of my sinful worldly desires. Now I say, get them off, get them out. Now, this is what, what Christ has accomplished for you, okay? So that you can be reconciled to God again. But we are also a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2 says. So where is your heart in this is really what this is getting at. I see a change in my position. I see a change in my passion, a change in my purity. Right? It's, it's really a change in my direction. That's always the first piece of repentance. This is the first element of repentance. That's what he's depicting. But that's not the only thing. Humble repentance isn't only a direction change. I was at the hotel the other night, and when I can't sleep, I'll usually turn on the TV 
<laughs> which, which doesn't say much about our TV content and how thought-provoking it is these days. I mean, it's like click, you know. And, and I, uh, I, have you ever seen the, the show Cheaters? Everybody know that show? And it's okay if you don't. It's not like high quality, but there was basically, it wasn't Cheaters, but it was the exact same thing, same flavor. You know, somebody caught in adultery, private investigator and the wife, you know, confront him and basically say, okay, what do you have to say for yourself? And it was, it was really interesting what this husband said when he was caught. He knew there was no way out. He knew there was no way around it. And what he said was, okay, yeah, you got me. I did it. I'm going to stop the relationship right now. Won't ever do it again. Okay, we're good. What do you think? Was the relationship with his wife made good again once he said that? No. She was actually more upset after he said that. Why? I mean, he cut off the relationship. He admitted to it. He didn't try to hide it anymore. She wanted to know that it mattered to him that she mattered to him, that he was broken over it. That's what was going on there. Husbands, wives, if, if you'd done something so stupid that it was going to cost you the relationship with your spouse and you had only one opportunity to say that you were sorry before you lost the one you love most forever, what would that look like? I bet there'd be tears. I bet there'd be pleading I bet there'd be sorrow, heartfelt remorse. I tell you one thing, you certainly wouldn't be laughing. You wouldn't be laughing about the thing that you had done. You'd be crying. Well, James says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's the second piece, guys, of humble repentance. It's sorrow over sin. I can't have a change in my direction but not have a brokenness over sin. That doesn't make me any different than the husband on the cheater show. But likewise, I can't express that I'm so sorry over sin and keep going in a sinful direction. I need to change direction and I need to be sorrowful over sin. Real repentance requires both of those. You remember in chapter 2, James showed us that God sees right through superficial faith. Well, believe me, friends, God sees right through superficial repentance too. I mean, mercy, is, is this what your repentance looks like when you've done your God wrong? I mean, do you notice in verse 10, if it is, if you're kneeling before him, grieved over your pride, torn over your unfaithfulness, that he, not you, he will lift you up again. That's so beautiful, guys. That's forgiveness. It's there for you. Every time you sincerely repent, that's the character of our God. That humble heart will bring you closer to God. And can you believe it? That humble heart can bring you closer to others too. Remember in James chapter 1, he said, Be quick to listen, 
slow to speak, slow to anger. And that's not just good advice for keeping from blurting out ignorant things or causing angry quarrels. It's a depiction. It's a character trait. It's a showcase of a humble heart. I mean, I could just as easily be saying, be quick to mercifulness, slow to judge, slow to pronounce judgment. That's not a real verse in scripture, just to be clear. All I'm saying with that is that it's the kind of heart James is showing us we're going to need if we want to put real healing, real unity within the body into practice. It's humility with each other, not judgment. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? He's saying that you've put yourself in the position of God when you judge others. You realize that? Because if I judge everyone but myself, what I've basically said as a result is that the law doesn't really apply to me. I'm outside of it. I'm above it. So I can judge it. But there's only one lawgiver and judge, and you're not him. He who's able to save and destroy, and you're not able. So who are you to judge your neighbor? Friends, the heart of the proud says, I can judge everyone, but no one can judge me. But God opposes the proud, remember? And you know what? Others will too. The heart of the humble, by contrast, says that I'm in need of mercy. I've received mercy, so I will show mercy to other brethren too. The heart of the humble is the one who is no longer judging, but living the royal law. I'm treating others as I'd want to be treated, loving others as I'd want to be loved, and judging others as I'd want to be judged. Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's a, that's a stark warning from our Lord that his judgment of us is going to reflect how we ourselves judged others. And to that end, I absolutely want to be seen by him as a merciful member of his body. But I think that we sometimes fail to consider the very practical wisdom in the advice with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Because to that end, I absolutely want to be seen by others as a merciful member of the body too. The judgmental person tends to elicit more judgment from others. Remember, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what we learned. If I'm hopeful for mercy from others within the body of Christ, then I'm actually motivated to show mercy to other members of the body of Christ. To do that, I need to recognize, like Paul did, that I'm the foremost of sinners, okay? That 
I, I need the most mercy from God and from others. And that recognition is humility. A humble heart before others. That's the kind of heart that keeps me from judging my brother. That's the kind of heart that keeps me from trying to steal the gavel from the ultimate judge himself. Guys, to bring it to a close, there's, there's only one opinion that's going to mean anything on the last day. And it's not yours, and it's not mine, and it's certainly not the world's. What if we stop declaring war on each other, stop declaring war on God, and start declaring war on the real enemy? our spiritual opponent, our worldly desires, our sin, which was conceived and brought forth by our desires. Yeah, we do what we do because we want what we want. So what if what we wanted could change for the better? That change could change our lives for the better. That could change our church for the better. That could change this whole world for the better. Beloved family, only Jesus Christ can change a heart for the better. Because only Jesus Christ can change our desires for the better. Which means only Jesus Christ can change this world for the better. Believe it. Could you imagine how things would be if we did it the way Jesus did? The Lord didn't let the world overcome him. He has overcome the world. And the power of his church, it isn't seen when the world invades us. The power of his church is seen when we invade the world. That's the Great Commission. The world already knows what the world looks like. There's no value in showing them that. Let's show them him. Show them a character that's not of this world. Show them a wisdom that's not of this world. Show them a unity that's not of this world. Show them a love that's not of this world so that they can see that we, his church, his bride, has a craving for Jesus and not of this world. Our Father, God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the way that you love us, the grace you give us, the forgiveness, Lord. God, I pray that we would be forgiving towards each other. Lord, that your spirit would move us powerfully to pray for you as we ought to. Lord, I pray that you would be pleased. I pray that we would grow and be a church to your delight and to your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.